Hello there, and this is your host of the Value Through Vulnerability podcast, Gary Turner, and welcome to episode 59 uh, with Dr. Jarek Conrad, who is the Senior Director of Human Capital Management Innovation at Ultimate Software. Whilst I'm not a big fan openly of the term human capital, I think that uh, Jarek's work is absolutely fascinating. And I'm really, really grateful that Trudy Wonder introduced myself to Jarek and that we were able to have this deeply rich conversation. Areas of focus that Yarrick looks at include emotional intelligence. And one of the really exciting things that came out um, from this conversation is part of the reason for the delay for this podcast being re released is that he shared with me um, a new intervention, a new work group called the Equity at Work Council that you know, Ultimate Software are chairing, stroke leading going forward, where they bring together a range of different experts across different fields to try and truly crunch and uh, design the future of work uh, to, to work for everybody. Um, out, outside of that as well, as a heads up, something else I really enjoyed um, Yarek sharing with us um, and you, the listener, um, is that direct supervisors matter so much. So often, I, and I'm guilty of this at times, we're talking about senior leaders, we're talking about you know, how do we actually empower people, et cetera, et cetera. But actually those, those middle managers, those people that are in line management roles that quite often get forgotten from a development point of view as they tend to be wrapped up in process and reactivity. Um, I really liked how Yarek spoke more to that particular um, role within the organization talking about the fact that we need to understand which leaders are good and which are not, um, what tools do they have to be their best, and what sophisticated tools can we offer uh, from a technology point of view to try and help us all be more human. You know, technology should be an enabler and not the other way around. So I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. I'm really grateful for Yarek joining me on what is now episode 59 of this Value Through Vulnerability podcast. And uh, yeah, we would welcome, as always, any feedback that you will be kind enough to offer with us. So enjoy and look forward to hearing from you. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability. This is a human-centered podcast from the listening organization. And today I am really grateful to welcome Dr. Jarek Conrad onto the podcast who is Senior Director of Human Capital at, and Management Innovation at Ultimate Software. And I believe maybe some other things as well, Jarek. So do, do expand on the introduction, please. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. First of all, uh, thank you for inviting me here. I am, I'm looking forward to our conversation. I like the fact that I don't have any questions. I haven't been prompted with anything. We'll, we'll just talk like real people do. So, so I'm excited about that. Uh, I have a unique role at Ultimate Software. I guess, quote unquote, it's a thought leadership role. Um, what it allows me to do is to contemplate, which I know are going to be some of the issues that we'll talk about today. It allows me to step back from our day to day. You know, we're an HCM technology company, mm -hmm. but I get to step back and think about, you know, people and what are people going to need in the workplace? What are HR professionals going to need to do to meet the needs of those people in the workplace? And you know, like what makes us tick and how does all that come together uh, in terms of creating an organizational culture or team culture or whatever it is you're trying to do to move your organization forward. So, so it's kind of, it's kind of wide open. I, I get to think. So it's like a, you know, I pinch myself every day that I get to sit back and I get to ask myself these tough questions and think about the tough questions that others are asking and, and try to put the dots together. 
That's, that, that's really powerful. And in terms of that, that role that you have, um, Yarek, I, I find it really, really interesting that as a te technology company, you've got this really defined role to really look at the human aspect. How's that come about for you? And maybe you can speak a little bit about why that's important to you. Yeah, I think, I think first of all, before you even bring me uh, into the equation, I think it's the company. It's the culture of Ultimate Software. You, you know, if you've heard of Ultimate Software, you've heard our tagline, people first. And that really is central to everything we do. Uh, I can remember in my orientation, uh, the CEO getting on the stage and saying, look, we're trying to figure out how do we make the workplace better for all people. And I stepped back like, wow, this is, I think I'm doing the, the right organization. So, so I think for us, you know, technology is a tool, right? It's, it's just a, a mechanism, a means to help people get things done. But it's that helping people get things done uh, that drives all this stuff. So we know if we don't profoundly understand who we are and why we are, there's no way we can, we can create the types of tools that we'll need to propel us forward. So, so it's really about the organization. And, you know, this is just one of those things that match made in heaven. Uh, you know, I worked on my own. In fact, I had a relationship with Ultimate. Ultimate was a client of mine for about three or four years before I came over full time. So in my own business, I was an executive coach and a, a trainer. I talked about leadership stuff, emotional intelligence, which I know is something that will be interest, of interest to you. Uh, you know, I talked about these things in my own business. So, you know, we just had a marriage here where, you know, our values are just, you know, really in sync. And, uh, and I get a real benefit because in my own business, not only did I get a little bit of chance to think, uh, but I had to chase down contracts and try and secure clients and deal with tax forms. And I had to run a business and it was taken away from my ability to try to solve problems. So, so this has been really great for me. That's really, that's really powerful, actually. I, I was going to ask you the question, actually, what was the shift for you three to four years ago? To, so what I'm hearing is, is around that following your purpose to, to create these, to, to find these answers. Is that fair? Or? It, it, it really is. I mean, we're, we're doing some things now uh, that I wrote about, you know, a decade ago that I thought, wow, it would be great if we could do so-and-so. But I was a one-man shop, you know. There's, there's no way I had the resources to get that done. We're now doing some of those things uh, at Ultimate. So, so it's been a real benefit. That's amazing. As, as we get into a little bit more about, say, the human-centered part, do you mind speaking a little bit to those ideas? What were those ideas and visions that you had 10 years ago that are now you're starting to bring to life uh, alongside Ultimate or with Ultimate? Yeah, yeah. And I've, uh, you know, I'm not sure. We might have to cut this part out. I don't know how much I should share at this point because this is really early. But okay. just to give you an idea, um, I, I wrote a book called The Fragile Mind. Again, I think it came out in 2018. And one of the recommendations, the book was about, you know, what makes us tick and how is it that we're still having problems understanding each other across differences like racial lines or religious lines or sexual orientation, whatever those things are, what goes on in the human brain in that process? You know, what are the kind of things that, that we don't even know we're doing to contribute to those problems. So, so that was really what the book was about. I talked about my experience and how I grew up in a unique situation and you know all that stuff. Uh, but one of the recommendations that I had based on the research that I had been doing was that a lot of the research was fragmented. You had uh, anthropologists that had a say-so from this perspective. You had sociologists that would have a say-so from this perspective. You had neuroscientists, you had 
economists, you had linguists, you had all these disciplines with very important information, but they only had a piece of the puzzle. And I didn't see uh, a, a, a forum where all these folks could come together and share these pieces so we could understand these issues more holistically. And so I, you know, I said it would be great if we could do something like that. And again, that was a decade ago. Uh, the folks at Ultimate found out about this a little bit over a year ago and asked me to put a proposal together and we're actually going to do something about it. We're creating an entity we're calling the Equity at Work Council. And it's going to do just that, you know, bring these thought leaders, these experts who've done uh, really groundbreaking research in one aspect of human behavior that might help us understand why we're still struggling. So, um, so we're really excited about that. This is new. I mentioned that it's kind of early because we're just forming. We're just in the process of recruiting these experts to come and join us. But that's probably the perfect example I can give you. It's an idea that I had that I just, you know, I didn't have the resources to take forward. And you have an organization that just it fit right in the wheelhouse of who we are uh, as an organization. And it just made sense. No, wonderful. Thank, thanks for sharing that. So uh, my juices are flowing now, uh, Jarek. I've got a, everything's, firing, everything's firing now. So I want to go back a little bit to your history because I think it's interesting for any of my listeners to learn a bit more about you as an individual as, as we get going as well. So from your sort of bio, from your background, knowing a little bit about you, you're really a, a ferocious learner. Um, so wh wh where did that come from? Was you always a ferocious learner? Or was it something that you had to sort of intentionally step into out of interest? Yeah, well, probably uh, it, it probably frustrated uh, my my folks, but I think I, I think I was born with a question. You know, I think when I came out, it's like, what is this? What is this hospital? Where am I? Who is this doctor? I mean, I've always had these questions, and uh, I don't know how much of it is an innate, you know, kind of thing, or how much of it has to do with uh, my environment. As you mentioned, you've read a little bit about my background. I grew up in a really challenged community in the states, uh, it's East St. Louis, Illinois. Uh, it's been described as America's Soweto. Uh, it's a town that's, you know, primarily African-American, almost 100% African-American, and the poverty levels are very high. Uh, the unemployment levels are very high. The, the you know, violent crime levels are, are very high. We've several times uh, been listed as, you know, the most dangerous place uh, in the United States, so one of the most dangerous small cities. So So it's a place that had lots of challenges, and I think you know, for some people who grew up in that kind of environment, the natural question is why? You know, I'm looking at television, I'm reading in books, everybody doesn't live this way. So why am I born into this situation? And why are people oftentimes stuck in these situations? There has to be something systemic going on, because I knew that I had good people around me, I had kind people around me, I had people who did work hard around me. That, so it wasn't adding up. So, I, I mean, I think that drove my interest around specifically diversity and inclusion. And, and that is actually what triggered my interest in emotional intelligence. It was, um, I went from East St. Louis, the University of Illinois for undergrad. And um, while I was at Illinois, I, I ran across this topic, emotional intelligence. I said, well, what is this? And as I looked at it, I said, wow, that, that seems like what I have and not just what I have. That seems like what a lot of people who grew up in these difficult circumstances, but overcame those circumstances and were somehow resilient and just saw a different future for themselves. It wasn't just their textbook intelligence. I mean, I knew a lot of smart people who ended up selling drugs, right? So it wasn't that. 
it was something else. And when I read Daniel Goldman's book about emotional intelligence, I, you know, I was convinced that the something else is this. And that's why I focused on it. When I went to graduate school, I learned more about it. When I worked in my doctorate program, I did a dissertation on it. And I've always been interested in the link between emotional intelligence and one's understanding and ability to, to, to deal with these cultural differences, you know? So it just seemed to me from an intuitive standpoint that to be open to diversity and inclusion will require things like impulse control, you know, things like your own self-confidence, things like your ability to, man to manage stress, you know, all those factors. So, so a long-winded, you know, answer that gives you a little bit of a background as to kind of why I probably still ask the questions that I do today. Yes, what I think so powerful about the description for me, Derek, is that curiosity. Yeah, you had it as a child, and you know, the evidence is out there. You know, so many generations, the same in the UK, I'm sure the same in the US, that we socialize ourselves away from asking why quite early on in our lives. Is that something that you would challenge, or is that something you've seen in your work uh, over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in the workplace, you know, we fall into, first of all, everybody's so stressed out, everybody's so busy. And everybody's running a mile a minute. You, you, you sometimes you don't get a chance to sit back and think about why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, so that, that part of it is just the sheer volume of the work and the pace of which we, we have to operate. That's one. The other thing is that, you know, sometimes we think if it's an authority figure, if this is my supervisor, if this is a leader in the organization, if this is somebody who's been doing this job for a lot longer than me, they must know the answer. And so, you know, why would I? Yeah, I'm not going to say anything and make myself look bad or, you know, take this risk because obviously I'm missing something. So we fall into this group think. If they're all operating this way, if they're all doing it this way, even though I have a little bit of questions, it must be me. It can't be them. It must be me. And that is particularly true if you're in an underrepresented population. So if you're a woman in an environment with a bunch of men, if you are African-American in an environment with a bunch of whites, if you are a young person in an environment with a bunch of people who are older, whatever that is, if it's like one of you uh, in some really significant way, uh, for some people, the, le the likelihood of me taking that risk to ask this question or to challenge the status quo is even greater because I feel like I may already be under a microscope. So the last thing I want to do is to bring some more attention to myself. Luckily, I didn't have that issue. <laughs> like, I, if I don't understand it, I'm not doing it. You know, I, I need to figure this out, you know, because there may be a better way. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit competitive as well. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out how can I do this differently? How can I, what can I say that nobody's ever said? What can I, what can I connect? What dots can I connect that nobody's ever connected? I mean, I just get a, a lot of energy uh, from that. What's really interesting for me as I hear you talk is there's this, this, this sort of challenge between that curiosity that clearly fuels you and what I personally believe we are all innately curious, but fear sets in or anxiety sets in or conformity sets in. So how, in your experience, how, do, how can we help people step from that fear and anxiety into more of a curious state? Are there any sort of, is there anything you've seen or any recommendations you have to, to help people do that? Well, there are a couple of things. Uh, number one, we got to make the the, the, the the way you take away that fear of failure 
is to make failure not so catastrophic. You know, it's okay to make a mistake. You know, if people feel like it's okay to make a mistake, they're they're likely to take more risks. I mean, I have two little ones, a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. So I'm just reading all this stuff about what I should be doing as a parent. And we know that if we just tell kids they're smart, you know, you get comfortable in that. And you just try things that you pretty much know you can be successful at because you want that reinforcement. But if you reward kids for working hard, it's, wow, you're such a hard worker. We know then that they'll take that risk. They'll do something that's more challenging because if they fail, it's not that they're not smart anymore, right? They, they still work hard. So if the focus is on working hard, they, they're likely to take more risk. And in a workplace, you know, we're just big little kids, right? <laughs> it's the same concepts. It's the same thing. And so we need to reward people for trying new things, reward them for working hard. Sometimes it's going to work out. Sometimes it's not going to work out. Obviously, there are some boundaries. You know, it can't be something that is so catastrophic that it takes the business down. But most of the mistakes that people make on a regular basis, we can recover from, right? And so, so enabling them to take those risks is clear. And having a, an organizational culture that rewards risk-taking is really, really important. The truth is, I left corporate America as I think I was a 20-something or early 30-something because I was in environments that weren't as open to me taking risks. They didn't you know, I was doing well. I had achieved a pretty high level in the organization for my age. You know, I was on a track. I was in the succession plan to do well. I probably would have stayed and been somebody's senior vice president of human resources. But I just, it was killing me uh, because I was, I was almost asked to sit on my hands because the organization wasn't ready to move as fast as I was. And they'd say, oh, great job. We need to be doing that. We're just about two years away from that. We can't, we can't focus on that now. So I had to leave corporate America, and that's why I started my own business. And uh, it's only an organization like Ultimate Software that could have brought me back uh, to working for an organization because um, if I can't take those risks, if I can't try new things, if I have to operate in you know, this structure that has to be lockstep, you know, the way you've laid out for me, I, I can't succeed. So organizations have to create we all have this, you know, many of us have this entrepreneurial kind of a, a curiosity, this edge to us. Organizations need to create these little entrepreneurial hubs uh, for people to satisfy those curiosities and take those risks. And, you know, we got to throw out the old rules that say you've got to stay in this job for a year before we could even possibly consider you for a promotion. Can't do that anymore. You know, I, 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 look, once I learn a job, I'm ready to do something else. <laughs> and there are a lot of people like that. <laughs> I'm really, really smiling, Jared, because I just the more we talk already, literally, we're just getting going. And I tell you, it's incredible how much we just react and reinforce the old without thinking for a second about what the new could even start to look like. And I'm just really intrigued in your opinion. What, what is the gap? Because I, I you know I've spoke previously with um, Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School about psychological safety. Is that a key uh, component from this? old world of maybe more fear and conformity to the world that you're so clearly involved in a curiosity. Do you think that's one area or there other things going on? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we've created uh, what we're calling the employee continuum of needs. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, kind of based on Maslow's hierarchy. You remember Maslow's hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And obviously that has gotten a little bit of criticism that it, maybe it's not as culturally relevant. And 
we don't necessarily think in a workplace that it's a hierarchy. We think it's more of a continuum because we feel like you can go up and down throughout this, you know, depending on what's going on with your life. But in terms of your psychological safety and all that, those are the things that are on this kind of, if I'm saying the left side is the beginning of the spectrum and the right side is the end of it, the left side, you're, it's the basic needs, right? Similar to Maslow's hierarchy, it's the basic needs, you know? Uh, first of all, do I have a job? Am I living paid the paycheck, paycheck? Am I just one getting sick day away from losing my job? You know, can I afford for my kids to be in childcare? You know, all these kind of things. Uh, but that's at the, the early end of that spectrum. And absolutely, psychological, emotional safety matters. You're not going to take any risks if you're in survival mode. Uh, and we know that it's not just a psychological thing, right? Those, that stress does something to your body. Cortisol, stress hormones, you know, physiological changes happen as a result of that as well. As you move down the continuum, you get into more things like uh, um, autonomy, where I could take some more risks because I know that I have a landing spot, I have a support system and all that because I've established some relationships. As you move further down the continuum, uh, you get into uh, actualization, you know, where you're accomplishing, th accomplishing things, where you're achieving some things. And then uh, on our model, we the last uh, category is fulfillment. And this is, you know, when, you, when you're working on something, probably like you when you're doing your podcast, I can tell that you love it. You look up and you've lost track of time, right? The hour has gone by really quickly because you're in flow. Yeah. Uh, what if we can get our employees to, when they come to work, and they don't even know what time it is because they're, fo they're so focused on what they're doing, they're in flow. And so that has obvious psychological uh, ramifications, but uh, I'd argue from a holistic wellness standpoint, uh, they're more likely to take care of themselves, they're more likely to be in better shape, they're more likely to eat well and get the sleep that they need. Um, so this is these these are the kind of concepts that that we're we're toying with, and uh, we're trying to figure out how to how to help organizations understand it, and and ultimately, are there tools that we can develop that that might help someone first of all identify where employees are on that continuum, and secondly, you know, provide the appropriate level of intervention to try and move them uh, to the next stage. What's really inspiring for me is, uh, as we talk is you spoke earlier in our discussion, um, Yarek, around the fact that tech is a tool. And I think that's such an important point because what I see at the moment is there are so many people in fear of the tool or the tool owning them. And I, yeah. I find it really interesting that in our you know, first 20 minutes here, we've not spoke about metrics once because you and I know, get this stuff right, the metrics will follow. And I just find that a really interesting reflection. Right. I think that's so absolutely true. You know, early on in my career, I've been in HR for 20 years now. And early on, when I would talk about things like it's not just the what you accomplished at work, the metrics, it's the how you get there. You know, people kind of looked at me with one eye, one eyebrow kind of up like, yeah, but what gets measured gets done. What gets measured gets done. Um, and I think we've changed that a little bit, uh, partly because. Uh, we are able to measure some of these things that we thought were intangible in the past. Uh, we do have some tools now that we can understand a little bit more about how the brain works. We can understand a little bit more about employee sentiment, for instance. We can start to capture some of that. So, so some of this stuff that we thought just wasn't measurable, I, I think we see that some of it is. 
But beyond that, I think we're realizing that, you know, these are long-term kind of goals. You know, they, you know, it, 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 what you invest in your employee today and the culture that you create, the environment that you create in your workplace today, you, you, you don't, it's not going to necessarily affect your stock price tomorrow for, for this employee you just hired. But down the road, I mean, just intuitively, if I got somebody who loves what they're doing, who are given that discretionary effort, not just what we tell them to do, but some extra stuff because they're so engaged. They feel like they're valued. They feel like they belong. They feel like this is a place for them. They understand what their purpose is and how our organization can help them uh, achieve that kind of fulfillment. There's no way you can tell me that this does not impact your bottom line. It's just, you can't tell me that. I don't have to see the number on it. <laughs> I, I, I love it. And do you know what? Do you know partly why I'm so excited seeing you beaming, Gary, as you, you deliver that message is for the first time in my life. So I've been working with a, with a client organization, uh, an international sales team of 15 people, and they transformed wow. literally end of 2015, fear based, what doesn't work, whose fault is it, all of that negative mindset to the end of 2018 around how we work together, what's getting in the way, how can we serve each other, plus 48% sales, plus 42% gross margin. Nothing else had changed. Nothing else, the same people, just the cultural change. Finally, I have a number to put on this stuff. Look, look, and now have each one of those <laughs> folks go to their doctor and, tell, and let's look at their doctor's orders or their doctor's write-ups from two years ago or three years ago until now. I bet you that from a, a holistic standpoint, they're probably doing much better. Yeah, yeah. No, I just, I just love how, yeah, you've just really, it, it's just the way, yeah? It, humanity is making a comeback. I'm loving this. I'm loving this. <laughs> <laughs> so let's think a bit more about your sort of, you know, your expertise in the emotional intelligence space. If I was going to ask you, you know, I'm Gary, I don't really understand the term emotional intelligence. How would you describe it to me to try and help me understand what this is all about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. I mean, it's almost how it sounds. Is the intelligent use of emotions, right? Um, when I first started talking about this, again, I guess it was 15 years ago or so. Uh, I did get that a lot. People are like, eh, you know, what, what, what is that? I, I don't know if I've heard of that. Most audiences today have heard of that. You know, when I speak about it, now they might not be able to describe it fully, and they may not say they can practice it, <laughs> but they at least know what it is. In fact, I don't promise that I. I can practice it every day. I can just tell you how to do it, <laughs> uh, number one. But, um, but it really is about, it's four, I would say it's four categories, four aspects of it that you'd have to keep in mind. Number one, I know what's going on with me at any given time. You know, I can, I have a good sense of, of, of why I'm processing information the way I am. I know how emotions are affecting my decisions. I know how I'm feeling. I can read my own emotions at any given time. And that sounds pretty simple, but there are a lot of people, they just can't articulate what they're going through. So that's number one. The second is not only do I understand what's going on, but I can influence it in some way. And so I get this uh, email and this email, when I read it, it seems to be questioning my professionalism. So my, I get this emotion, I wanna lash back, right? And what emotional intelligence allows you to do is even if you do get that emotion, you say, oh, but that's not, that's not what I'm supposed to do, right? This is, this is the kind of stuff that Jared is talking about I'm not supposed to do. So I feel like doing this, but instead, I'm going to do this. 
So it's, I recognize what's going on with me emotionally, and then I can have some control over it. Uh, that's the second part. The third part is, uh, now that I've handled the, the introspection piece of it, I got to think about what's going on with somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. So can I read your emotions? Am I good at looking at you? And do I take the nonverbal and verbal you know, clues that you give me to understand where you are? And then finally, how do I adjust to that? Can I modify my behavior to meet you where you are? You know, can I adjust? You know, uh, Gary just doesn't seem quite on today. Let me let me let me take some extra time, and you know, I, I'm going to schedule a meeting with him later this afternoon just to sit and talk about how he's doing because I can just read something's not quite right. Mm -hmm. That that's what emotional intelligence is all about. It's it's all for those components. And what's interesting is that you have some people who are are good in one of those components or two of those components and lousy in the others. I mean, it just just because you're great in one doesn't mean you're going to be great in the others. And that's the other thing that's a little bit of a fallacy about emotional. Well, there are a couple of things that are fallacies about EI. One is you just walk around smiling all the time, happy-go-lucky. Nothing ever goes wrong. You never get upset. That That's not true. Anger is an emotion, right? And it's appropriate to get that out sometimes. It's just how you do it that's important. Uh, the other thing is that if somebody has emotional intelligence in this one area, then they're just going to be overall totally emotionally intelligent. And we know from politicians, politicians can read us very well. They can read our body language and they can say the right thing. So they have that aspect down, but they don't always have the other aspect down, you know, what it is that's going on with them. Uh, and not just to pick on politicians, it could be, you know, <laughs> leaders, it could be nonprofit leaders, business leaders, people, uh, in authority uh, situations, who can take advantage of vulnerable people. Uh, when I think about growing up in East St. Louis, um, when I think about some of the, the negative element, uh, even some of the negative element, people who were, you know, you know, criminals, you know, they, they could read people very well also. And um, so that was one aspect of emotional intelligence, right? But we wouldn't say that overall they were emotionally intelligent. No, th thanks for sharing that. I think what's really interesting for me, when you opened up your introduction, you spoke about that you love what you're doing. So you've got this space to think. And yeah. what's really interesting for me is when you look at emotional intelligence, I wonder sometimes if emotional intelligence in itself is, you know, it's a byproduct of us thinking. Because if we're, if, we're if, 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 we, if we're not thinking, we're in flow. So if yeah. we start to think, we're then starting to start to think about our emotions. Do we attach meaning to our thoughts, etc.? I'm just wondering what, yeah, I'm just you know, how important is it for you that you create this, the environment for more of your people to think and the people that you serve to think? Yeah, well, it's critically important. I mean, and, and how you've described it is important because there is this interplay. You know, I, I, I think about it that most people believe that they're objective and rational. So most people think, you know, you get this stimulus, the stimulus comes in, I analyze it objectively, and then I behave, you know, based on whatever the result is of that analysis. That's, that's the way we think we make decisions. That's not how we make decisions, right? The information comes in, and we generally have an emotional reaction. Oftentimes, it's a subconscious reaction, and it's, it's just based on how we're wired, fight or flight, right? So there's this subconscious, you know, reaction that we typically get. And some people just react from that. So the thinking doesn't even come into play until later on. Oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. Um, where I try to get people is, you know, the stimulus comes in. 
you have this emotional filter, you recognize, okay, this is how I'm feeling about this. And now you use your intellect. Now you bring these other cognitive abilities in to analyze this a little bit more objectively. And then maybe you go back through an emotional filter. Okay, now I've done, I've gone through this process. This is how I feel. And now I act. And so that's what we're trying to get people to do. And so in an organization, if we're going to create that process uh, in an organization, then we need a couple of things. We need, first of all, direct supervisors who matter so much in our organizations. Yeah, what the CEO says is really important, but it's the direct supervisor that's touching people every day. We need them to buy into this, to recognize how important it is, uh, these relationships and how you treat people and all this quote unquote touchy feely stuff that we stayed away from in the past. They need to value that. They need to recognize it and understand their, their impact uh, in an organization and get to know their employees on a very individual level so they can meet them where they are emotionally. That's the first thing. Uh, and what organizations need to do is realize that, look, not all of my leaders are going to be great at that. So what tools are there out there, like sentiment analysis or you know, other kind of tools? What tools are out there? that we can use uh, to help our managers? Are there tools that can help our managers provide better feedback? Are there tools that uh, are out there that can help our managers identify trends that they might not have been able to, to pick up before? Not just trends in terms of the numbers, but trends in terms of behaviors and how people are responding. So we need good supervisors, we need good uh, direct supervisors, and we also need to give them the resources they need uh, so they can step up their game. So uh, we think about artificial intelligence, for instance. We, we talk about it being uh, amplifying and augmenting human behavior, not just replacing us, not just automating the work that we do. So the degree that an organization understands that there is the potential for these tools, these sophisticated tools, to actually make us more human in some ways, uh, so we can have better relationships. That, that, that's the approach to AI that, that we want to take and we hope that our customers take. That's, that's, I'm so glad you touched on that today because you know, there's been certainly the last 18 months an awful lot of fear around the robots going to come and take our jobs. And I, I, yeah. I put out a bit of a cheeky post, to be honest with you, Jarek, last week where I said, the only people that need to be concerned are the robots taking our jobs are those humans are acting like robots. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, that is very... <laughs> hey, I might take that. I might use that. That's really <laughs> feel free. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a creative commons. But really, I really feel that innately is this, you know, unless yeah. you're acting like a robot, what are you afraid of? You know, I just, yeah, I just can't get my head around that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's very true. There's one, there's one exception to it. I can think because organizations uh, have not done as great of a job as they could regarding diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. uh, we oftentimes have in our environments, you know, we have people of color or people in other underrepresented groups at the entry levels, you know, at those very entry levels in our organizations. And as you go up the ladder, you have fewer and fewer, uh, you know, people that are in those typically underrepresented populations. And it's those entry level jobs uh, that are that are likely candidates for automation. Uh, and so you could hurt your diversity and inclusion efforts, uh, first of all, if you have not done a, a great job of recruiting people to work at all levels of your organizations. And then if you introduce this stuff without thinking about the impact it's going to have on the populations, 
uh, you can end up with even less diversity and inclusion uh, than you had before. So, so that's the only caveat is that because we historically have not done a great job in society of preparing uh, these underrepresented people for high level jobs and as corporate America in being fair and making sure that, that we're going out and getting that talent and making sure that that talent is throughout all levels of our organization. That's, that's the only caveat I'd have. <clears throat> Excuse me, but you know something, I'm really glad you shared that one because one of the, as you know, one of the themes of this podcast is inclusion. And, yeah. you know, I myself, I've spoke, spoken a couple of times in this podcast, you know, I didn't realize what white male privilege was until the age of 41 last year. And that's not a joke, you know, because really? I've grown up with that privilege. And that's part of this podcast journey is to have conversations like this and wake other people up like me to that reality that we aren't as inclusive as you might like to think we are. So I'm really glad you touched on that part because if you didn't, we would have missed the really important segue. So thank you for that. Yeah, good. You know, I'll just add that uh, one of our team members, Trudy Wonder, Trudy probably get mad at me mentioning her name. He's, <laughs> she likes to stay in the background. But one of our team members sent me a a post, you know, we share information if we see a story or, you know, it's relevant to the things that we talk about. And she sent a post from an NBA player, Kyle Carver, who talks specifically about his, you know, quote unquote, white male privilege. And it was, it's been circling. I don't know if it's made it to the UK, but it's been all over the United States that uh, the, the authenticity with which he spoke. And uh, I think it, it, it resonates well. So I'd encourage your listeners to look that up. Um, and I don't know Kyle, so I'm not, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, trying to get you to go to his site and all that stuff. But I, I just thought that it was very thoughtful. Uh, and it just explained what we're dealing with in the United States uh, and probably other countries uh, very well. So. No, that's great. Oh, look, if you wouldn't mind sharing that, actually, I'll make sure it goes in the show notes of this podcast. That, 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 that'd be great, Eric, because... Okay. This inclusion part, it can be very easily overlooked. And I, you know, I've not thought about it until you just said that actually, you know, for me, again, I can see it through my, my polite white eyes that actually yeah, it's fine, you know, everyone's seen, etc. But you're, the yeah. reality is that's not the case. And if the jobs that are going to be impacted are those that are going to even make this inclusion discussion harder, then we need all to be talking about this right now. So honestly, that's, that's, that's a huge learning for me right now. So thank you. Well, terrific, terrific. And just one of the things I know, um, I talked to so many folks uh, <laughs> over the years uh, about these issues of race and gender and all that. And, you know, this notion of privilege comes up. And um, and, and, and what I find with uh, some people, particularly white males, when they hear this notion privilege, it's kind of like, I'm not listening to anything else, particularly if I'm a white male who grew up poor, if I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth, and I know I had to work hard to get to where I am. And so um, I think sometimes the language that we use, uh, uh, oftentimes it may get in the way of the concept. Um, so when I think about this term privilege, uh, I, I just like to say, look, we're not saying that somebody gave you something. You know, we're not saying that you didn't work hard. We're not saying that somebody just took you and elevated you. And, you know, all we're saying is, Nobody took nothing from you. Nobody put up additional barriers for you based on something arbitrary like just looking at you and race. What we're suggesting is somebody might have worked just as hard as you, but just didn't get that opportunity because they look different. And that's what people mean when they say privilege. So, uh, so I think it's important that um, people that don't typically get in discussions about diversity and inclusion just 
a term is all they need to shut down. And no, nobody gave it because they don't have necessarily the emotional intelligence, right? Nobody gave me anything. I don't want to hear this stuff about privilege. It's uh, it's true. You know, you probably did work very, very hard. Nobody's taking that away from you. But there are others who work just as hard or maybe even harder. And they just had some additional manufactured hurdles that you might not have had. That's lovely. That's a really beautiful and eloquent actually summary there. I love that barriers. Yeah, it's not uh, just brilliant. That's going to really resonate. I know with my listeners for sure. And I think it's a nice segue here as well around just barriers to ourselves. So actually, you know, how often with emotional intelligence and our ability to communicate and empathize and connect with other human beings at work, Yarek, how often do we get in our own way, in your opinion, as part of this whole story? Uh, everything starts there. <laughs> everything starts there. You know, uh, so many of the challenges, so many of the conflicts that we have with other people, so many of the run-ins that we have, so many of the things that I got pulled into as an executive coach, when I would get in a room with somebody one-on-one, uh, it would be fascinating. Look, be- before, I, before I went to work every day, before I started with a new client, my wife used to tell me, Jared, don't make anybody cry today. <laughs> and, and the reason she would say that, it was be, it, it, just inevitable. When I would get somebody in a room and I would ask them questions about why, you know, why do you think you reacted that way? What do you think is really driving this? Can you tell me what's going on with you? They would break down and it would be problems at home. It would be problems with themselves. I'm just not comfortable in this new job. I don't have the confidence that I need. So now I lash out at people or I'm 40 pounds overweight. I used to play sports in school and I look at myself and I don't like the person I've become or, you know, just a, so, so many of these things start with, you know, with me, you know, what, how am I contributing? I might not be the whole culprit, you know, I might not be responsible for all of it, but I'm typically responsible for some of it. And so much of what holds people back is, uh, you know, it's psychological. And uh, just to go back on that theme of diversity and inclusion, you can understand it a little bit. If I have been told in either direct or indirect ways that I don't stack up, if I've been told that so many times, maybe I don't. Uh, and maybe I don't take this chance. Maybe I don't take this risk. Maybe I don't put myself out there uh, because, you know, I, I, I may fail spectacularly. So so absolutely. Absolutely. People have uh, lots of things that they could be potentially insecure about. They feel like what has led them to the success that they've had today, that I've been successful operating this way. So I'm going to keep operating this way. They don't know sometimes they've been successful in spite of how they have behaved, not because of how they behave. And that is a hard one for, for people to understand. It's, it's really nice. As we start to, to wrap up our, our discussion today, which has been amazing. So thank you. Um, thank you. I, I'm really interested because it's sort of, you know, the, 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 the podcast title is Value Through Vulnerability. I genuinely, personally, without trying to lead you down a path, believe that vulnerability is a strength and not a weakness. But I'd really appreciate you challenging or giving your view for my listeners as to what you, how do you feel vulnerability shows up and is it important in the workplace? <laughs> so it's, it's so funny that you, you ask that because oftentimes when I'm in front of audiences, especially when I'm in a small group, like 25 people or so where we can talk, I ask that question. <laughs> is vulnerability a strength or a weakness? And it's interesting to see, you know, how people respond. You know, as a leader, I can't show that I'm scared, then they'll be scared. You know, I can't so and so. 
I absolutely believe vulnerability is a strength because we're human beings. And if you are a human being, there has to be some aspects of your life that you're not as confident about. I want to see that real person because if I see that real person in you, I'm more likely to connect with you. Look, I'll run through walls with you if I know that you are sharing some of the same fears that I might have, yet you decide to move on. Well, I, I guess I can move on as well. So vulnerability is a strength that it's how we, you know, it's how we demonstrate that, right? It doesn't mean you come, oh my God, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Like <laughs> that probably wouldn't be the appropriate way for the leader to respond. Uh, but for a leader to say, look, I know what you're feeling because I'm feeling it as well. I'm not 100% sure. I have some concerns, but based on everything we know, this is what we're choosing to do. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to use this fear to propel me to move forward. I had a um, I had a professional boxer. Michael Spinks used to be world heavyweight champion. He uh, uh, he was interested in dating my sister when I grew up in this, this public housing. You stick with me. You'll see where this is going in this public housing complex in East St. Louis. Uh, he actually came to my house to visit. He and his brother, who was also a professional fighter, and they came to my house. I was a little kid. I don't know. I'm, I must have been six, seven years old, I, I guess. And um, uh, I was like, man, you aren't you scared when you go in there and you're fighting these big guys? Aren't you scared? He was like, every single time I put on my gloves, I'm scared. I was like, really? You know, this guy goes on to become heavyweight champion. He's scared. He said that, but I use that fear so I can focus more, so it can drive me more, so I can get the things done that I want to get done. I remember that conversation, you know, some 40 years later. Uh, so I absolutely believe that, you know, vulnerability is authentic, um, that, you know, if we think we have it all figured out, we're probably fooling ourselves. I mean, that's hubris, you know? That's when you walk right into some trouble. Uh, it's what you do, you know, with that. It's, 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 it's how you use that to inspire you, how you use that to inspire others, uh, you know, how you, you can use that to, to, to motivate yourself to accomplish some things that you didn't even know you could accomplish. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And I think I just want to put a little shout out. Actually, I was looking at your uh, doing a bit of research on you, uh, Yarek, and I see you've got a business sprouting bean, which is really, really interesting. Yeah. So, so do, you yeah. to, do you want to tell my listeners a little bit about that? It seems to be sort of bringing the, the loop of wellness and emotional intelligence and humanity nicely together somehow. Yeah. So look, you've done your homework. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I am. I am working. I have a trial going on right now where I have about 100 people going through this process. Um, I was involved in a clinical trial at the Mayo Clinic where I, I designed uh, this program to help people uh, convert to a, a more of a plant-based diet. And these were people who had some health challenges. And, uh, and I can't talk too much about that because we're going to write a paper about that uh, this year. But um, uh, I created this uh, entity, this company, uh, to try and, and help people make that transition. Uh, but the key is, it, it, just as we've been talking about, yes, I provide information on nutrition and why eating fruits and vegetables and plant, I mean, and, uh, and seeds and legumes and all that, why that's important. Uh, but that's not what gets it. You know, giving people that information is uh, just a small, small part of the puzzle. 
The challenge is this gulf between knowing the information and on the other side, doing the right thing with this information. And that's the emotional side. And so what this business is all about is trying to figure out how to, how to help people make that emotional transition. And so I teach things like impulse control, emotional self-awareness, stress management, because all those impact whether or not you eat that piece of chocolate cake when you know that you've committed to not eating any more sweets, you know, when you know you're supposed to be on a diet or when you know that whatever that thing is, it's not healthy for you. I'm trying to give you the tools to understand why you feel like you need to eat it and how it is you can kind of override that default mechanism in your brain so that you can make better decisions. So it really is trying to bring together all the things uh, that we're talking about. Beautiful. Well, what a wonderful way to wrap up. Look, how can people find you if they want to have a further conversation with you personally or find out about your work with Ultimate? Well, you can find me out on uh, LinkedIn. I, I don't even know uh, my handle out there, uh, but I think it's at uh, Cornelians. Um, but if you just, you know, do the search for Jarek Conrad on LinkedIn, uh, you can find me. And we do some regular blog postings. Uh, also, if you, you know, you can search uh, Ultimate Software and you typically you can find out uh, some of the things we're doing now, we publish white papers and, uh, you know, other kinds of um, uh, publications that we share uh, with people. But uh, I'm one of those folks, just do a search for my name. You can find me. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I'll make sure your contact details are in the show notes. And Jarek, honestly, you've been an absolute joy. Really appreciate your time. Perfect. Perfect. So much. Thank you so much for having me, Gary. Yes, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Hi there, just Gary Turner, your podcast host, wrapping up this excellent conversation with Dr. Yarrick Conrad from Ultimate Software. I'm really interested, as I know Yarrick will be, to find out what did you take away from this particular conversation? What resonated? What challenged your thinking? What would you challenge? What didn't resonate with you? I'd be really, really interested to, uh, to get you, the listener, involved in this conversation. A few of my other key takeaways I'd like to share with you in case they did resonate with you too. One was um, Yarek's view as to what emotional intelligence means for him. So he speaks about reading his own emotions at any given time, recognizing what's going on for him in the moment. And can I read your emotions between the lines? Am I actually sensitive to what you're actually saying, maybe between the language that you're using? This really speaks back to me. I had uh, the incredible Oscar Trimboli on the podcast recently where he spoke about listening and listening between the words. And I think it's a very similar thing here around emotional intelligence for Yarrick, which is actually how do we show empathy and try and understand from the other person's point of view what's going on for them, rather than trying to make assumptions around how they feel or what they're thinking. Um, and this links for me heavily to vulnerability, the vulnerability to go in and not be okay with not knowing what the other person's thinking or feeling and just asking the question. So really enjoyed uh, Yarrick's view as to what EI means for him. One of my challenges actually from this conversation, which I really enjoyed, was around privilege. So I spoke very openly and I continue to speak openly about my recent awakening as to what white male privilege looks like. But I really liked where Yarek came from, where he spoke about, because privilege as a word can be quite combative, I understand that. So what he's talking about is, you know, have you, or have I, for example, you as the listener, you know, if you're someone that does come from a minority group um, or a more marginalized group, is it that you have any less privilege than me as a white male? Possibly. Um, but I think what I really liked um, that Yarek said is that you, I've had, as Gary, as a white male, less barriers put up for me. 
So it's not necessarily that I have privilege more or less or otherwise. It's that I've got less barriers put up for me to be able to achieve what I've achieved versus what you may need to go through, um, for example, in a minority group to achieve the same outcomes. So there is an element of privilege, but I like the way that Yarek speaks about it being the number of barriers and how can we all help each other break down the barriers as we do move towards what I believe is required, which is a more equal, more fair society where everybody has the opportunity to achieve and not just those in select groups. Um, and I actually spoke previously in case it's of interest to you, the listener, um, a range of different inclusion and diversity topics where I spoke with Ben Lum back in episode 19, someone that has um, autism. We had Rahena Begum, who is a fantastic human being, works at the transformational um, unit of the NHS. Um, a wonderful lady of colour who's uh, taught me an awful lot uh, in the recent 12 months. And also Joe Candola, who has a PhD in gender bias. And she's developed a business called The Bias Gym back in episode 22. So there's some really cool, interesting and thought-provoking conversations around the DNI space and close they may be of interest um, to you as well. And I think my final wrap-up I'd like to share with you that, that I took away from this conversation is around practices. So Yarek spoke about making failure not so catastrophic. You know, don't just tell kids that they're smart. You know, it's okay to fail. It's okay to get muddy. It's okay to make a mistake. You know, support people with experimentation. That's certainly something I can speak to as someone that ran a three-year experiment within my work organization um, without seeking permission. I'm a big believer in uh, um, seeking, um, seek, seeking the okay uh, for making the mistake rather than someone that seeks permission up front. I think there's, there's a lot to be said for that. We're being paid salaries. People are employing us to do a job. Um, if we're innovative and creative within that particular remit and we're not upsetting anybody, then why not go ahead and experiment? Um, boundaries are key, and I think this is really powerful and speaks back to David Marquet and I's conversation back in episode seven of this podcast series where he spoke about structure creates freedom. It's such a powerful statement and one that I'm increasingly um, bought into. And also I liked Yarek talking about that organisations need to create entrepreneurial hubs. And this is something my good friend and peer, um, Perry Tim, speaks a lot about, is actually how do we always have these um, circles of teams, teams that actually maybe on the edge of the organisation, or those that feel more comfortable to push up to these boundaries, experimenting, and then maybe without disrupting the mothership, um, how do those teams come together and share knowledge, share what worked, what didn't work, without necessarily having to go for this big justification piece for senior leaders or the CEO. Um, so they're the things that I took away. I wonder what resonates with you. Please do let me know. Please do let Yarek know. We'd be greatly appreciative of any feedback you may have. And I'm really excited to see how this works. Council evolves with uh, with Trudy, Yarek, and Ultimate Software. And yeah, just keep, let us know what you thought of this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I'm pleased to finally be able to release it to you all. Um, as always, it's great grateful to receive any feedback via the usual mediums, Twitter, LinkedIn, and indeed, ideally, on the podcast app um, at Apple iTunes. Should this resonate with you, it'd be great to try and get these conversations, these deeply human-centered conversations to more people. Uh, until the next time, this is episode 59 with Dr. Yarek Conrad from Ultimate Software, and I'm your Valley Through Vulnerability host, Gary Turner. Cheers. Thank you.